Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about batterer intervention and prevention programming. I know that's a long name. It's usually called BIP for short. It's an acronym. And in in all my work over the years, um, I, I get a kind of a mixed response, especially from within the church world about my association with BIP and the years that I've worked in BIP, but then also um, some hesitation about using local services for individuals who claim to be abusive. So my hope is today that we'll maybe help with some of those uh, doubts, maybe expand some of our understanding of what the program is, and assuage some of those fears. So first of all, what is a batterer intervention and prevention program? Well, it does vary state to state. I will say that you probably will not find a uniform program per se, but the most recognized, the most um, recognized curriculum and model is what's called the Duluth model. It was created by the Duluth Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth, Minnesota, and it's keyed around what's called a community-coordinated response. And a uh, community-coordinated response, or a CCR, is this idea of assembling and connecting all of the agencies that are that are in contact with the victim and the perpetrator. So law enforcement, prosecutors, community-based advocates, um, batterer intervention program facilitators, community members that are involved in seeing violence reduced in their area, like uh, clergy or uh, just community involvement. And these folks connect on cases to provide accountability for the system, just to help the system see people uh, addressed properly. Is the victim involved in a support group? Is she getting the financial support she needs from legal aid? Is she navigating the court system well? On the perpetrator side, is he attending court-mandated sessions? Has there been a recent arrest or police contact? Having interagency cooperation uh, provides additional accountability and allows the community to serve victims and hold perpetrators accountable more effectively. That's the idea. Now, in some communities, it works better than others. For instance, I've been uh, in Duluth. I've been connected to several people from the program up there, and at times, they are a well-oiled machine, and at other times, there's some education that needs to happen. In our community, we have a pretty good team. We have a team that is fairly connected and committed to each other. Um, most of us have you know, direct contact with each other. So there, there are some benefits to having the team. In other parts of the country, I will say that the model is really reduced to a curriculum. And I think when that's the case, you don't see as much effectiveness. In fact, some research that was done by uh, Ed Gondolf uh, would show, I think he studied 12,000 uh, program attendees, something like that, or 1,200, excuse me, 1,200. 12,000 would be amazing, but I think it was 1,200. Anyway, uh, and showed that community-coordinated response was a key element in successful accountability and education. So there are some communities that have programs. 
to hold batterers accountable, for instance, through corrections or a community-based agency that are not part of a CCR. You'll get some benefit from those, but they're really not as effective as the programs that have a CCR, a community-coordinated response, that is. So I bring all that up to, that's what it is. It's a uh, education curriculum that's taught over a particular period of time. In some states, it's as little as 28 weeks. In others, it's as much as 52 weeks. But a convicted batterer or a batterer sentenced to a program will attend that program weekly. There are consequences for missing or for skipping out. And uh, it is a way for the local government or the local community to hold men accountable. In addition, that curriculum or that education team, they are part of a larger community-coordinated response. And so they bring back information to that team kind of to help them uh, do a better job, right? So in a nutshell, when someone recommends or they talk about connecting someone from our church to a BIP, what they're talking about is an existing education program in your community that may be part of a larger community-coordinated uh, community response designed to hold offenders accountable. Now, with that said, when we have made those recommendations in the past, we get pushed back in two areas when we've made those recommendations. So a church calls us or uh, a man contacts us and we can't, we don't have the, the ability or the timing is off that we can't personally engage with them. And since there's not a whole lot of ministries that do this type of work, we recommend they find a local uh, batterer intervention program. So the pushback comes in twofold. The first is from the church. So I want to address that. Sometimes the church will push back and say, we, we are not comfortable sending one of our guys to a secular program. And I totally get this. And I want to say that there, there are elements of batterer intervention programming that will, from a worldview perspective, run in contrast to what you may be teaching on Sunday morning. Now, 90% of that may be bad. 10% of that may be good. Because if they're confronting some of the teaching on Sunday morning that's uh, oppressive or harmful or actually putting your women in harm's way, then I will lean on the side of those who are protecting and helping. But there is a legitimate concern here when the church says, Chris, we hear what you're saying. He needs accountability. He needs education. He needs help. We're just not comfortable with what may be taught at the local secular agency. And my pushback would be, number one, that's legitimate. I get it. Much of uh, much of the worldview development, much of the worldview of people involved in this work would be a, a form of humanistic feminism. So I, I kind of get the pushback. Now, the curriculum itself shouldn't be promoting a worldview, but we all know that we come at things with our own presuppositions. So my recommendation would be, if you have concerns about the facilitators indoctrinating um, a parishioner, then send someone along with him. If they're willing to take volunteers, then schedule a meeting with the facilitators and ask if you as an elder or a pastor or a team member can attend weekly meetings with the, uh, with the parishioner. 
that may or may not be a possibility, but how awesome would it be if instead of just sending him to a secular agency, you went along and you learned about the dynamics and impact of abuse. You learned about consent and respect, and you learned about all the things, and you heard the stories of the other guys in the group. I think that would make you better as a as a pastor and a leader. Now, sure, you might shake your head at some of the stuff that's assumed, right? Because that's what happens. We all, in our own environments, make assumptions and presuppositions. So you may be able to offer some correction and take the meat off the bone, as people say. But how cool would it be if you were to walk alongside? Another option is to make that part of your counseling process. Be upfront. We know this is not a biblical program, but our relationship is. So I would love to look over your homework with you. I'd love to have a report on what you're learning in the program. And I'd love to compare and contrast that with the work that Jesus did. I think what you'll find as you encounter things like the equality wheel and the power and control wheel, that it can fit very nicely into some of the discipleship work that you're already doing. Now, I know there are some out there that are saying any time that we as the church engage with an intervention or a model that was designed by the world, we're somehow denying the sufficiency of Scripture. I would be a little less, I would be a little hesitant to go there. And here's why. Um, and, and I may not be as stringent on that as some others are. But the vast majority of work in the domestic violence world from the secular environment is based almost entirely on observation. Now, I understand that when observational material is taught, it is taught from a presupposition. I'm not naive that a facilitator will not share his or her worldview in the dissemination of that information. But the work in and of itself, right, the idea of um, the power and control will, the equality will, um, aspects of respect versus disrespect, uh, aspects of disrespectful communication versus respectful communication, the ability to catalog our actions, intents, beliefs, uh, and alternatives are observational-based material. It's good exercise. It's good uh, work that can be done. So in that regard, I'm not opposed to utilizing good observational material. And um, I would trust you as a pastor in your review of homework, or even possibly attending meetings to be able to uh, thread that needle and understand the distinctions. So that pushback we do get, and I want to respect that. If, if you're not willing or you're not comfortable, we get it. There's not a whole lot of options that are similar that will give you the same bang for your buck as a local BIP program will. Uh, I, I can say I think that we do that with Men of Peace. I think we give... Uh, good, solid information. I think some of our partners that we work with around the country do that. I think Ben Marshall has proven that he's he's doing that in uh, out, out west. I think Greg Wilson has shown that he's doing that in his counseling practice, but there's so few of us, right? And uh, that's why I think we need more and more help, which is one of the reasons why when we have a good pastor, like a pastor who really gets it, and they want to get involved in this work, I do recommend, if they get the chance, take the Duluth training. I trust you more than I trust, 
I trust your worldview and your biblical theology more than I trust um, a, a secular worldview that might be presented to you. So I love it when pastors get involved at that level, although I do get the pushback. You know, the other pushback I get, and I get this too, is, is you'll have a guy. So here's, it's kind of anecdotal. It's kind of a story, but you'll have a guy, and this happens pretty often. He'll try. He'll go to a local BIP. They accept volunteers. He'll go, he'll fill out the paperwork, and then he'll, he'll try to attend the group. But the group, let's say there's 12 guys in the group. He's number 13. And the other 12 are all there on criminal sentencing orders. And he's there as a volunteer. That is a level of discomfort. I could say coming right in, a couple things are happening. One, you're, you're tempted to play the comparison game, right? It's like, well, at least I'm not as bad as these guys. Uh, because they've got, quote unquote, you know, criminal charges. The other problem is you can, in that comparison see your story as superior to their story. So there is a temptation to feel justified that you don't belong. And what I often tell guys in that situation is I say, you know, you're there for an education, right? Not for justification. And the same heart that led that guy that confessed to strangulation last, you know, Wednesday in the group is the same heart that led you to spout that hateful, you know, tirade at your partner. And it's the change that happens at the level of the heart that's imperative. And just because there's not uh, criminal laws against your behavior doesn't mean that your behavior is moral or righteous or superior, right? It just means that it's different. And so that comparison game is a huge temptation the other justification that comes out a lot with guys is, well, they're, they're, they're offering bad philosophy, meaning that sometimes the facilitators will make assumptions. Um, and, and I don't mean to be, it's fine. People can believe what they believe. I really believe that. If you're in an agency like that and you believe a certain way, you should have the freedom to talk about it. I think I should be able to talk about Jesus in those settings and people should talk about the things they want to talk about. I think some of the danger is, is sometimes these organizations can be a little homogenous. They can kind of be a little insulated. And so I think some assumptions can be made about political positions and philosophical positions and worldview positions that sometimes a, a conservative Christian walks into and feels threatened or attacked. And I would encourage you just to come into a group with an open mind. Like, don't come in defensive which I know is hard because you already feel like you don't belong. You already feel like everybody's pointing the finger at you. And now not only are they talking about your behavior that you should never have committed because it's sinful. Well, now they're talking about things that just um, seem unnecessary. And now you're feeling attacked on that front too. Lower the defenses. Go into a setting like that ready to learn. And you know, be prepared to dialogue. And one thing I also appreciate, and, and I say this because so many of my friends in this work kind of are on the liberal or progressive perspective of thought or politics, maybe more so than, than I am, is if they're really, really, really committed to their worldview, they love to hear opposing points of view. Now, if they're rigid then and, and um, unyielding and, and really, you know, ugly about it, then 
there's nothing you can do. But I haven't found that to be the case in a lot of this work. I found a lot of folks to be very resolute. And uh, once they find out you have an opposing worldview, want to talk about it and uh, come in with an open mind, be prepared to learn. And I think, I think you could benefit from it. So from those two fronts, you know, pastors, it may not be a good fit. You may not have the time, margin, or energy to partner with a secular agency, but those agencies are there and they can provide a helpful supplement for the good theological work that you're doing. And they can challenge um, guys in your congregation in areas that I think can complement the work that you're doing in the counseling room. Uh, fellas, if, if you've identified as an, as an abusive guy and maybe you don't want to wait until the next round of Men of Peace or you haven't found a counselor that really understands the dynamics and impact and you know that you need some accountability, uh, a local BIP group might be uh, a good next step for you. Understand that uh, there might be opposing or differing worldviews in that group and that you're there for education, not necessarily to defend your position. And so learn, interact, get to know the facilitators and develop a process or develop a goal in which I'm going to take this information and make the necessary changes in my life to be safer. And that's probably the last thing I'd like to, to leave with, with you guys. And I think sometimes a program, whether it's Men of Peace or whether it's a counseling practice or perhaps even um, a Duluth program or an Emerge program, a, a BIP, there's this expectation that completing a course, completing a, um, a class, attending a class equals transformation. And that's just not the case. In fact, when it comes to batter intervention programs, um, the goal is far less about transformation than, say, what we talk about at Men of Peace. It's about, are they safe? Can you be safer? Can you treat people in a way that they're not threatened? And um, it does have to do with beliefs and the heart in a lot of ways, but the goal is really quite different. Um, so understand, even if you go into a counseling relationship, there's no guarantee that that person has the magic formula. It, without a willingness to change and a desire to do so and the effort required, you won't see the change that you're expecting. Do not place the responsibility of your transformation on a person, a group, a program, a class, or its completion. You have to own that 100% yourself. You have to wrestle with those realities and come to those conclusions yourself. And then, of course, if you're a person of faith, you have to rely and rest on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the scriptures to see transformation take place. It takes a lot of work. And if you've been uh, abusive, then it takes a lot of surrender, right? And that's something I'm assuming you haven't done much of. So um, new skill sets, new things to be learned uh, for sure. So I hope this episode has been helpful. Uh, my hope is that it's kind of demystified some of the criticisms of some of our the secular organizations out there. I'm not saying that they're all wonderful. I'm not saying that they're, they're all um, super effective. But it is a resource that you could check into uh, to help you help supplement your education and to help you as a pastor maybe partner in that process of change. All right, guys, thanks a lot for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. Until uh, next time, God bless.